Well, we are continuing in our series today in, uh, we call this the wisdom of kings, the best and worst of Old Testament kings. And we're focusing actually on the kings of Israel and Judah. And uh, last week we met King David. David's, um, you know, kind of our favorite king, the man with a heart after God. And we talked about what it looks like when we have a heart after God. And uh, we're going to look at David for a second week. He's the only king we're going to take two weeks to, to spend time with. Uh, in part because he's just such an important king for Israel's history and for our history. Um, David was the youngest of uh, youngest boy in his family. He had seven brothers, and uh, he he was kind of the disregarded kind of little guy out in the shepherd fields. But he's the one that God anointed to be king. And uh, he, we learned last week about how he faced down Goliath, that great giant, and how God equipped him for that. And he just, he was who God called him to be in that moment, didn't try to be somebody else. And God allowed him to, to take down the, the, the giant Goliath. And uh, so David then um, begins to rise in prominence, even though Saul is still king. And for a long season, you know, Saul is trying to, Saul recognizes that David is the next great leader and he's jealous and he tries to have David killed for quite a long period of time. He's, David lives as a fugitive and, and lives on the run and has to feign madness for a time and has to pretend that he's actually on the, uh, aligned with the Philistines for a time just, just to survive, just to get by. But he, but he manages and, and eventually, uh, Saul dies. Actually, Saul dies by suicide. Saul takes his own life. And they anoint David as king. And David is successful. He accomplishes great feats of, of military power. The kingdom is expanding and it's, and it's growing. And uh, everything that David seems to do is just working out just fine. Until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've got a Bible with you today, I'd love you to find that. You can listen along as I'll read and summarize two chapters, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. If you're using a red church Bible, we always make them available at the Connection Center at the front. You can help yourself to those anytime. But we're going to be uh, in 2 Samuel 11 and start on page 263 if you are using that red church Bible. By the way, somebody asked, what translation do we use? It's called the New Living Translation and um, that's available at any uh, Christian bookstore online, on your phone, on, a, on an app, downloadable, uh, New Living Translation. So we are about to get some bad news about David. Second Samuel 11, verse 1 says this, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Well, late one afternoon after a midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And he looked out over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, which is the author's way of telling you she was right at the point of ovulation, plus whatever's going to happen to follow, it's no one else's baby. And uh, he slept with her, and then she returned home. In verse 5, later, so we sometime later, however long this takes, 
when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message. I'm pregnant. Short message. Big meaning. Right. Verse 6, then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David, and when Uriah arrived, David asked how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing, and he told Uriah, hey, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he'd left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. And David heard that Uriah had not gone home, and he summoned him and he said, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. Verse 12, we'll stay here today, David told him, and and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him to dinner, got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home with his wife and he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Verse 14, so the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest and then pull back so he'll be killed. And Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And and when the enemy's soldiers came out to the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, well, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there'd be shooting from the, from the walls, etc.? Um, and then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So verse 22, so the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David and, and he explains it all. And, and, and verse 25, well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and, and can conquer the city. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives. And she gave birth to a son. David may have thought that, okay, I'm in the clear. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Chapter 12 tells us how everything is revealed. Verse chapter 12 starts this way. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David a story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. And he raised that little lamb. And it grew up with his children. And it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. How many of you ever had like a pet that's just just like that? Right? How many of you ever had a farm animal that was a pet just like that? Okay, not enough of you grew up in the farm, but... You know, like that happens. I had a I had a steer when I was a kid. His name was Luke. Luke the steer. I get it. I understand. That was my that was my buddy. Right? He died. Because I was not very good at taking care of dear Luke. So it's another story for another time, apparently. Alright, verse four. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. Surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are that man. 
The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the powers of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. And from this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Verse 13, David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord's forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. So this is, this is what happens. So Nathan leaves, David goes home, his child gets very sick, he, he prays for his child, he fasts, he really wants his, his child to, to live, but after seven days the child dies. And, uh, it's, it's a desperate moment. Verse 20 says this. He gets the news and then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. And after that, he returned to the palace and was served food and he ate. His advisors are confused and amazed. He says, we don't understand you. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now the child is dead and you've stopped your mourning. You're eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back to back again? I will go to him one day. Heaven's a real place. Those who've trusted in the Lord will be reunited. Those who you've lost a child in infancy or you've miscarried a child or you lost a young one, you will be reunited one day when your faith is in the Lord. It's an amazing, amazing promise. But he cannot return to me. David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. And she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. And they named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved as the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. We'll stop there. Wow, what a story. What a story. I mean, how could this happen? David, how could you do this to Uriah? And this whole clan. I mean, obviously, we see from the story that David was not where he was supposed to be. If the kings were to go to battle, to go out to war, and he stayed back. Generally speaking, and I'll speak primarily to men, but I think this applies to all of us. When men, when we are not on a meaningful mission with our life, then isolated and bored, you mix all those things together, and we are highly vulnerable to sinful temptation, particularly sexual temptation, especially, for example, today, pornographic temptation. And, and, and David was supposed to be somewhere, and he blew it all off, and he was not on mission. And that was the first thing that got him in trouble. Now, Uriah and Eliam, this is kind of interesting to me, they were part of a group of an inner core, an inner circle of David's men called David's Mighty Men, also called David's Thirty. There's actually 37 of them. But, you know, we round off in, in these, these kind of ways. And you can read about it in First Chronicles 11. It's this kind of list of these kind of the special forces, like the special, special forces of David, the, the bodyguard types, the guys that were closest to him. And Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and her dad, Eliam, were both in that group of 30. So think about this. 
Do you think just perhaps David already knew Bathsheba a little bit? Had they not been at some of the same social functions? Had they not kind of been around? Had they been a little chummy? Had they been flirtatious? Had they sort of, had David sort of spun this out in his mind like, man, she is something like, wow, right? I think it's entirely possible. I think he had entertained fantasies about her already. I do not believe she was a stranger, even though in the passage it says, verse 3 says, find out who that is. I think she's just far enough away from the palace. He thinks it might be, he's not really sure. Finds out, oh, that's, that's Bathsheba. You know, your eyes, why? Oh, bring her over here. Your eyes away, Eliam's away. This is perfect. That's a setup. Verse 4, David sent messengers to her, and when he, when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Pride, here's the thing. David was just in a place of pride. Pride tells us, I can have whatever I want. I'm exempt from the consequences. It doesn't matter. I can have and do what I please. There's no consequences. I'm not subject to the same limitations as other people. That's how pride gets us. The nature of temptation is to sow such dissatisfaction in our lives that what we have is never enough. No matter how much it is. I mean, here's David. He is powerful. He is wealthy. He has six wives already. He has multiple concubines already. It's not an issue of sex. It's wanting what I can't have. That's what he wanted. That's how temptation, that's how the enemy works. It it sows that. I want more. It's like, you know, you ever seen a two-year-old playing with a toy? And then they see another two-year-old that has a different toy. And they were perfectly happy with this toy till they saw that somebody had that toy. And now they want that toy too. That's David. He's the two-year-old. He's got a box full of toys. He's like, oh, I want that one too. Or as Nathan tells the story, he's got all the sheep that he want. But, oh, he's got one little lamb. I want that one. It's a, it's a just horrendous buildup of pride And temptation in his life. And yet, here's the amazing thing. David is still considered a man after God's own heart. He's the man after, he's the ideal king. He's the one we still say, well, you know, if we could be like anything, we'd want to be like David. It's a, it's a puzzle to many of us how that works. Saul was rejected for his rebelliousness, but there's no record of Saul committing adultery and having somebody killed over it. He didn't do that. We would say David's sins were way worse. That's how it appears to me. I think it's how it appears to most of us. So why does David get to keep the kingdom? But Saul did not. I think it has to do with David's repentance and David's humility. He came down off his proudful pedestal. When confronted, he did not make excuses. He accepted the consequences. And there were consequences. If you follow after chapter 11, a number of things happened. Some of them we touched in the story, right? David and Bathsheba's love child, or should we call it lust child? And let's... There were two involved in this story. We don't... The the Bible really casts no aspersion on her, but she was complicit. Uh, The child died. David's sin seems to have unleashed a lustful and murderous spirit in his household. Because David's son, later on, David's son Amnon, in fact, it's in the next chapter, his son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. And David did nothing. 
Was he guilty? Did he, had he lost moral authority to speak into his, into the life of, of his son? And then Tamar's brother Absalom, another, you know, remember there's multiple wives, but just, just one, David. Um, so then, then Absalom has Amnon murdered, his brother. Oh, just like David had somebody murdered and David again does nothing. Again, has no moral authority to speak into their lives. And then Absalom and David are estranged for a long period of time. And Absalom then gathers a, a, a following. He's this, he's this gifted leader. He's charismatic and handsome and he gathers a following. And he holds a coup against his dad and his dad has to leave Jerusalem to, to save his life. Absalom then commits multiple adultery with David's concubines publicly. He just takes whatever sin and just multiplies it out. And then they go to war and 20,000 people die. In addition to Uriah, who died along with some other soldiers initially. There's a lot of bloodshed here. Then Absalom is murdered. Then, then David gets back to Jerusalem. But there's another attempted revolt. I mean, things were never the same for David or generations to follow after this, David and Bathsheba's second son, Solomon, becomes the next king, but there's more bloodshed following him, and it just goes on and on. Sin weaves this tangled web. One sin, one lie, one indulgence, and then it leads to another sin, another and another, and so on. If you've ever gotten yourself into a lie, and then you told another one to cover up, and then another one to cover up, and it's just a sort of a white lie and a half-truth, and you realize, oh... How am I going to get out of this? How can we possibly learn from this? How can I become a better follower of Jesus because of this story in the, here? You ever wonder that? How, how am I going to be a better disciple? I, you, you might say, well, this doesn't even apply to me. I've never slept with my neighbor's wife and certainly did not have her husband murdered. I don't ever think I ever will. It's irrelevant to me. That's fair, but there are some things that David's behavior tells us this. The first is this. Sin has an unpredictable end. Sin has an unpredictable end. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write that one down. See, all sin is against God. David understood that because it's God who sets the standards for what's acceptable. Even adultery is not a sin against just the spouse. It's a sin against God because it's God who set the, set the bar. And when David stayed home from battle, I'm pretty sure he did not plan for this to happen. We don't know why he stayed home. Maybe he was just tired of the fighting. Maybe he was a bit arrogant. Thought someone else can do that. I'm, you know, I'm pretty important. I better not go do that. I'll just stay home and watch Netflix, right, or whatever their version of that was. But it was a selfish mistake. I don't think you planned it. And I, I mean, I can relate to that. I don't know about you, but sins I've committed, mistakes I've made, I didn't set out to mess up. I, it wasn't my intention, but there is usually some selfish decision-making first. Oh, it's my turn. I deserve this. Whatever. Sin has an unpredictable end. You, you, you cannot see how far it's going to go. See, not only did David's adultery violate Uriah's marriage covenant, it, it ended several lives right away. Then it messed up David's kids. Then it caused turmoil in the army. Other relationships were damaged. Thousands of people died. All for one evening of illicit passion. 
Sin takes what God intends to be beautiful, right? The sexual intimacy of marriage and, and just cheapens it into a selfish romp. Sin takes what's meant to bring joy. What could be more joyful than those three little words? I am pregnant. That's supposed to be a beautiful, celebrative, joyful moment. Some of you remember that. Some of you are praying for that. Some of you are praying for that, but not right now, right? But that's supposed to be, oh. And sin takes that and be like, oh. Isn't that crazy how it does that? Sin has an unpredictable end. Don't, don't let yourself think, oh, my cheating is harmless. My anger issues don't affect anyone. My, my habitual spending doesn't matter. It all leads somewhere. You just can't predict how far it's going to go. I know a couple of really good guys, ministry leader, leading guys, who are in deep, deep trouble right now with, um, child porn and, and related issues. And these are guys that have been an asset to the kingdom of God. They've been encouragement to many. They've got great marriages and wonderful kids, or at least appear to. What started out as a little curiosity has taken them down a dark, 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 destructive path and taking others down with them. And it's just heart-wrenching to watch this happen. But no one predicted how far, could have predicted how far this would go. But if sin has unpredictable ends... So does grace. So does God's grace. God's amazing grace. And some of you right now are just on the verge of feeling like, oh yeah, I've messed up. Listen, I've got good news for you right now. I've got good news for you right now. Grace offers surprising outcomes. Grace has surprising outcomes. Because David repented, and he submitted his life to the Lord, and he accepted the consequences of his actions. But then who would have thought he could still be the king? He, you would have thought he'd be completely disqualified. Who could have predicted that, that a child of that relationship, David and Bathsheba, the next child would be the next king? Who could have predicted that the Messiah, our Savior, the promised one of God, would come out of the line of that relationship? Think about this. Jesus Great, 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 whatever, how many greats? Grandparents were an adulterer and a Gentile. And that's who God chooses to deliver you and me from our sin. Grace has unbelievable, promising outcomes. That's where the good news is. Cannot forget that. And I don't know, maybe you struggle with feeling unworthy or you're not good enough or you're ashamed or you're embarrassed of your past or or you know you've messed up and you're feeling guilty and you feel condemned for all those mistakes and sins. I need you to know that your forgiveness available to you in Jesus is is surprisingly complete, surprisingly perfect. The potential of a new life in Christ is deeply promising. Gotta believe that. David wrote a a psalm. It's recorded, and he may have written more, but there's one that's recorded in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51, where it's after all these events, it's just kind of confessional psalm. And in verse 7 of Psalm 51, he, he says this. He says, purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. 
not purify my sins and I, I hope to one day, you know, that maybe you'll kind of overlook it because, no, purify me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. There's such a confidence in David, such a promise. He knows he did the most terrible things. But he also has this faith to believe. When God does it, it's complete. When grace comes, it's perfect. Romans chapter 8, if we jump to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writing in the the great book of Romans, verse 1, he says, There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. When you bring your life in surrender, you yield your life to Christ, you receive the forgiveness for your sins. There is now no condemnation. You're not sentenced any longer. I understand. There, there may well still be consequences, but not punishment. There's a difference. David learned it. You've learned it. Right? Broken relationships or broken bodies, broken finances... And I understand these things leave lasting scars, but yes, God often even limits the extent of the consequences that we should be facing. That's the amazing thing about how God goes even further than, than we expect. And the freedom of grace says you're free. You can serve God. You can live a life of purpose once you have humbly repented and surrendered yourself to the work of Christ in you. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Grace offers surprising outcomes. That's good news. Somebody say amen. Now, on the other side, we might... Okay, you and I might have a hard time receiving that grace because we don't feel worthy and so on. We have to get over that and receive God's amazing grace. But it can also be hard to extend grace and forgiveness to those who have sinned. And so the truth is that anyone can fall, everyone can repent. Anyone can fall, everyone can repent. You know, I, as a pastor, I, I, you know, I'm in circles with, with other pastors, and, and, and pastors are humans too. We're people just like you are. And I've got pastor colleagues who, who have stumbled into to moral failure and sin, and, and you know, they maybe were put on a pedestal like, oh, he's perfect, that could never happen to him or her, and... And then we say, oh, wow, I'm never going to forgive that person for what happened. It's not how it works. Anyone can fall, but everyone can repent. Because no one plans to mess up their life. No one expects to inflict, inflict the devastation of, of sin on others. But no one is completely immune. Anyone can fall. Good people mess up. But everyone can repent. Sometimes you'll hear this line. I've heard it. You, you've probably heard it. Well, I've done too much bad stuff for God to ever forgive me. You ever heard that? Someone says, well, I could never come to your church because, you know, the, the roof would fall in and lightning would strike. And I, I, heard, I hear people say that. And I, I, I respect it's an attempt at modesty and it's, and it's an attempt at penitence and, and express, you know, I'm, you know, feel bad about what I did. I get that. But I'm going to try to say this nicely. It's an insult to say that your sins are greater than God's grace. It's an insult to say your sins are greater than God's ability to forgive them. Some of you have carried some stuff around in your life. Maybe nobody knows about it yet. Things that you did, things that were done to you. And you just, you've held that because you think, 
God couldn't really forgive that. I mean, yes, God really could forgive that. Or, or, or they, you know, now there's others who will say, well, I know God can forgive me. I just can't forgive myself. I hear that a ton too. God can forgive. I just can't forgive myself. Again, let me try to say this nicely. You're telling me that you have a better grasp on justice than God does? That you know better than God what's worthy of forgiving? That's pretty arrogant. You say, if God can forgive me, I, I have to forgive me. I'm not greater than God. We need to work those things through. So three little things to grasp from David's episode here. One is that we need to be quick to repent, to confess and to repent. David, unfortunately, didn't own up to his sin until he was confronted. But then he did. He admitted it. And to confess means to say, yes, I did this. I made the choice to do this. No more excuses. No more blaming someone else. We turn, repentance means I turn my action away from this direction to God's direction. And when when confronted with your sin, whether it's the Holy Spirit confronting you or someone else confronting you or you just recognize what you've done, are you full of excuses, which is what King Saul did? Or can you admit it, repent of it, you know, confess it and, and move forward? So be quick to confess and repent. Secondly, accept consequences humbly. Accept consequences humbly. See, in addition to the deaths of Uriah and, and the others, David was promised crushing consequences. Second Samuel 12, 13, 14. We read this, but let me read it again on the screen. Then David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for the sin. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Now, before I carry on my comment, I just have to step out of this for a moment. Those of you who've lost a child, that is not God's punishment. We are talking about a very specific incident here. And don't let anyone heap that condemnation on you that it's somehow your fault. Am I clear? We are talking about a specific situation here. No, David did what you or I would do. He went home and he begged for mercy. He cried. He fasted. He pleaded with God. And God did not change his mind. And then after the child passed, verse 20 says this. David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and he worshiped the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. Is that what you would do? Is that what I would do? I don't, I don't know. Isn't that the moment we could turn really bitter? God, how could you let this happen? What kind of God would, would let this take place? God, why didn't you hear my prayer? But instead, David poured out his heart to God. And that's what we'd be invited to do, to accept the consequences humbly.
third kind of lesson here is that we want to be gracious to those who do sin and repent. Be gracious to those who sin and repent. Samuel confronted David, delivered the message. I kind of don't think Samuel was particularly casual about this. Sorry, Sid, Samuel. Nathan, thank you. I wrote it wrong in my notes. Nathan the prophet. But once David repented, Nathan did not keep beating him up for it. He did not keep coming at him, heaping it on him. Be gracious to those who sin and repent. When a friend or a spouse or a child or a parent or someone has confessed and repented and they've received God's forgiveness and the grace, we need to extend that grace as well. And this is a bit hard for me. My kids will probably attest to that. You know, it's really easy. It's really human nature to, to remember what's been done and not release it and not let it go. But that's what we really need to do. Not dismissing the consequences, I get that. But we can't hold someone's sin over their head. God's forgiven you and we can forgive others as well. Some of you need to stop reminding your spouse, for example, about their mistakes, including little blunders. You need to stop bringing up old offenses when you have an argument. Stay on task. Argue about whatever it is right now. Don't argue about what happened last year or two years ago or ten years ago. Stop telling your friends or your parents about the dumb things that your spouse did. Stop it. You're destroying your marriage when you do that. Work it out. Get help if you need to. Forgive. Release. When there's confession and repentance, you've got to do the same. So be gracious and forgiving to those who repent. Lastly, and this is, for me, a really encouraging note. I'm going to invite the worship team, actually, to, to join. Come back. We're going to... We'll do both songs, Christy. Um, a forgiven heart loves to praise God. A forgiven heart loves to praise God. After his son's death, David got up. We saw this, went to the temple. And what did he do? He worshipped God. David's song of confession in Psalm 51 includes this in verse 15. He says, Oh God, unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like, I want to praise, I want to say something, but my lips feel sealed? I just can't. And there's that moment saying, God, would open my mouth, God, that I could praise you. I spent much of yesterday with one of our newest uh, Men and I Brethren Church Planners, a guy named Phil Weeb, which is just great that he's got the same last name. Um, no doubt that he's going to be a great success. And uh, <laughs> he's planning a church in Utah. But we were, we, he's also from another country as I am. And we were talking about how we're both fairly new citizens, U.S. citizens, and how much we like being Americans. And I said, look at this. And I opened my shirt. I have my U.S. flag t-shirt on, you know, and and he's like, yeah, isn't it great? And we, you know, we were kind of dissing our home country a little bit. And, and, and he says, I think we get something that people who were born here don't get. Like, it's a privilege. Like, we love being here and we love 
we've chosen this. And you know, it was really kind of a fun moment as we talked about. Um, he still cheers for a Canadian hockey team, and I, I can't really understand that. It's Winnipeg. It's terrible, bad choice, right? But it's this thing of, I get it. I've received something, and I'm grateful for it. One of the reasons I have loved working with, with church plants and new, new Christians is that new believers love to worship God. Because they get it. They realize what they've been forgiven of and, and, and they understand their new life. And sometimes, uh, you know, those of us who've walked with Jesus for a long time, that moment of decision was decades ago and we've kind of forgotten. We kind of like take it for granted. Instead of being, for, you know, really grateful. Sometimes we actually become critical of God. God, why haven't you done this? God, you should have done more of this. And we, then we become critical of the forms and we don't really like this song or that song or this music or that music. It's too loud, it's too quiet, it's this, it's that. Instead of just saying, I'm just, I'm just happy to praise the Lord. I see longtime Christians who won't sing when given the opportunity, won't get their body involved in worship when given the opportunity. Think, well, that's not really my style. Really? Because that's the Bible style. King David talked all about singing, shouting, standing, lying down, kneeling, clapping hands. Well, it's not really my style. Well, it's in the Bible. We need to not be afraid of that. Because a forgiven heart loves to praise God. Now, maybe you feel like, I don't think I'm really that forgiven. Okay, then get on your knees and, and receive what God's already already acquired for you. We have the best medicine possible to the most serious sickness. We should be excited about that. Praise ought to be the most natural thing. So we're going to sing a song called Just As I Am. And as we sing that, I just, I just invite you to take this as a confessional moment. Maybe there's some stuff that you've been holding on to against another person. I know that's the case. For some of us and Maybe this is the moment we need to begin to release that. Maybe you actually need to go talk to someone and say, I'm sorry. I want to receive the same kind of forgiveness. I want to extend that same kind of forgiveness that David experienced. Maybe maybe you've just struggled with feeling like you're just not worthy and you're not good enough and, and you've beaten yourself up and you've, you've just, you haven't been able to receive what God has for you. And I'm just inviting you today to say, Jesus, I'm just by faith, can I believe that what you say is true, that I'm forgiven, I'm a beloved child of God? Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, and today's your day to say, Jesus, I put all my faith in you. Maybe this is a serious enough moment for you that you're going to come to the come to the front here, what we call the altar, but just come down and just kneel down and say, God, I love you. I'm forgiven, I'm thankful for that. Maybe you're going to stand and raise your hands and praise. Maybe you're, maybe you're just going to listen to what the Holy Spirit said. I don't know. You respond the way you sense God's telling you to respond. I want you to have assurance of forgiveness. And I want us to learn how to extend that love and grace to others.